0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SUPCHINA. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, website, and growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the safe, socially distant makeshift studio I have at home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is a man who apparently believes that a sufficiently woolly beard will function just as well as an N95 surgical mask. Mister <laughs> Jeremy Goldcorn, Jeremy, how are things out there in Goldcorn,
0: holler? They're, I mean, they're really good. I, I can't. I, I feel bad because in some ways I can't complain. I, I, ever since I moved to America with my family five years ago, we've uh, I've worked remotely, um, and. My daily life hasn't actually changed very much. Um, So, uh, in fact, in some ways, uh, it's busier because suddenly everybody else is remote working, too, and wanting to talk on the phone and (laughs) teleconference and Zoom and everything. So, uh, you know, despite the fact that the world is falling apart, uh, our country is run by a buffoon, uh, an incompetent buffoon. and we appear to be heading towards World War Three with China. Everything is great in Gold Corner Hollow.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I'll take all that uh, just because I haven't had to travel at all. It's been wonderful. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jeremy, take a moment to tell our listeners about our COVID-19 newsletter, would you?
0: Yeah, so we decided since we are in the business of doing newsletters, amongst other things like podcasts and websites, um, we would like to uh, offer a free service to our readers and anyone else interested. So we're making a daily weekdays update about COVID-19. Usually goes out late morning uh, New York time. It covers COVID-19 developments in America and across the globe uh, and intended to give you one place to catch up on all the news and give you all the links you need to know to relevant articles. So uh, if you are interested in this, please go to subchino.com slash coronavirus and sign up. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Uh, Today, we are joined by our good friend Dexter Roberts, Tiff Roberts, uh, to talk about his brand new book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. By the time he finally left China in 2018, Tiff was among the longest serving reporters in China. I think he was topped only by people like maybe Melinda Liu, uh, writing for Business Week, now Bloomberg Business Week, since I think the mid-90s. He's coming to us today from Missoula, Montana, where he makes his home.
0: Uh, Tiff, man, how are you?
2: I'm doing quite well. How are you, both of you doing?
0: We're great. I'm great, man. We're great, and I, I can't believe uh, we've never had you on the show before, so a belated but very hearty welcome to Seneca.
2: Well, I'm delighted <laughs> to be on the show. I'm a big fan uh, as a listener, and now I get to be on the show.
1: Yay. Anyway, Tiff, the three of us actually had a ton of overlap in the twenty odd years that we were all in China together, and you know I saw you all the time. It's really great to read a perspective on that same China that we all knew or, or thought we knew, and to find you know that there was in fact a whole lot that I at least didn't know or or didn't think about all that much or not as much as I should have. So the book focuses on rural China and the migrant worker or or Mingun experience across you know a, a quite a long span of time. Uh, it strikes me that while there have been quite a number of good academic books from different fields like anthropology and sociology uh, that look at the lives uh, of the, the migrant workers and the many issues that, that they face, I, I really can't think of many books that have been written for popular audiences that deal really squarely with this issue. Um, so there's the book Factory Girls by Leslie Chang. But with that book, which I do think is excellent, has a very different central thesis than than yours does because it, it focuses on this you know empowering uh emancipatory effect of the whole rural to urban migration you know she tells stories that are meant to kind of uh go after the sweatshop narrative and it's a great book but uh by coincidence, I read your book shortly after finishing The Warmth of Other Suns uh, by Isabel Wilkerson about the, the great migration of, of African-Americans from the Jim, Jim Crow South up to the major northern cities, not west of Los Angeles. Uh, I thought there was a ton of overlap. I mean, I kept thinking about that as I was reading your book. Uh, do you think that China's own great migration has certain similarities with that chapter in American history?
2: Well, I, first of all, I would just say that uh, I'm a big fan of Factory Girls by Leslie Chang as well and read it. And uh, I say one of the differences uh, that I think, ex- one, one of the things that explains the real differences in our approach is when she wrote that was sort of the height of the migration from the countryside into the cities. And my book uh, coming out uh, early just last week is looking at st- instead at a very different era when many of those workers are actually returning home. So anyway, that just yeah. just as a, a quick note. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, certainly in both cases, uh, both po- migrant populations have uh, experienced systematic uh, discrimination. Uh, I talk a lot in my book about the migrants being, in effect, uh, a, a whole second class, uh, second class citizenry. Uh, in China. And certainly you can say that's been the case as well uh, with, the, with the Great Migration to the North that, that you mentioned in this book.
1: Sure, sure. Absolutely.
2: One difference, and not to minimize in any way the racism and uh, redlining, and all those things which are absolutely awful and a blight on American history. One, one difference is that in China you do have uh, actual policies, these legacy policies that I talk about that Uh, are put in place specifically to ensure that migrants remain in this second-class position.
0: Tiff, uh, let's talk about your thesis, which is really embedded in the title. It's not so much that China isn't in some sense capitalist, it's just that there are massive and often overlooked costs to the Chinese miracle. Is, is that a fair characterization? Or if I may be direct, what exactly is the myth of Chinese capitalism?
2: Yeah, first of all, I do think that is a fair characterization. And I mean, the, the myth that I look at or the myths that I look at, I, I would argue, are there are several parts to them. And sort of the big, the big picture is the myth that China is becoming more capitalistic. And by capitalistic, what do I mean? Basically, that these very real economic reforms that uh, powered this tremendous surge of growth uh, ever since Deng Xiaoping uh, are continuing. And I think it's pretty clear to me, and and I think to many others, that they're not they're not continuing the way that they were, uh, particularly over the last five years or so. Uh, more to the point of the book, uh, another myth is the idea that. The Chinese middle class, uh, now that it's pulled in many of the urban residents along the coasts in particular, will keep expanding. And that the migrant workers and uh, their cousins in the countryside, which together, by the way, you know, it adds up to maybe 500 million people, we're getting close to half the population of China. If you look at uh, rural hukou, or rural household registration, migrants plus rural people, and, uh, and, of course, it's, it's far larger than the entire population of the U.S. And so the right. one key myth, I believe, is that those people are, are somehow going to be converted into spending middle-class consumers. You
1: no, know, I mean, I completely agree, and I, it's a, a terrific book, if I haven't said so already. Uh, one of the devices that I think really works, that makes the book so good, is how you illustrate each of the different themes in the book with a place, all the while, you anchor the whole thing on this one family, the, the Moa family, who are from this impoverished area of rural Guizhou province. Uh, but maybe give us an overview of the different themes that you bring in the book, and then maybe talk about the different places that you use, uh, that you traveled to, that you reported from uh, to uh, relate those themes, You know, to, to really illustrate those themes like you know, rural education and the origins of reforms or, or the plight of the elderly or, or, or land requisitions labor unrest all that stuff uh what what can you give us a quick sort of map a geographic map of the themes that you 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 talk about
2: well in terms of location uh you know clearly the to a degree uh cities or villages are you know sort of the the main characters in the book and the two that i focus in on of course are Dongguan, which is sort of export capital to the world uh in the pearl river delta uh where
1: did you say escort capital of the world
2: (laughs) well that that too yes uh unfortunately although there's been there was a crackdown on vice there but along with the factories yes there was a it had a very it had a, a notorious reputation for for uh for nightlife and escorts and so on uh particularly for the, the Taiwanese and Hong Kong business people that ran the factories there. But in any case, I focus in on Dongguan as the sort of emblem, city that's emblematic of, of the factory to the world model, which is the place, uh, uh, you know, the factory to the world is where so many of these migrants have been employed over the last couple decades. And then um, look at uh, the city or I'm sorry, the village of Binghua, or Binghua Cun. Cun obviously is village. And. Um, in in rural Guizhou, uh, and this is deep in the interior of China. And although it's it, it's special in some ways, it's also emblematic of the interior of China, which in general uh, has lagged in you know key indicators from income levels for the people there to access to education to access to health care. So those two cities or places, those two places rather, are sort of the stars of the book, if you will. I first went to Dongguan and Binghua Sun together in the the same year of 2000. I was working on a story for Business Week called The Great Migration, which was the first time I really started to follow this phenomena of the migrant workers. Uh, In the following years, uh, I went back, you know, dozens of times to both places, uh, particularly to Dongguan as I wrote about manufacturing and the rise of the export economy, uh, often focused on looking at it from the factory manager's viewpoint, but then later also looking at the the rise of a labor movement. Uh, so those are sort of right. the two stars uh, in terms of places uh, of of the book. Uh, you know, but
1: there are many other places there, you report. There are from.
2: many others. So uh, you know what I earlier on in the book when I'm looking at. Uh, some of the very earliest labor movements i was up in the northeast in the old rust belt of china the labor movement and protests really started there in the early 2000s in places like uh liaoyang in uh liaoning province and then which is mm-hmm. which is a place that i do mention in the book there were huge protests at an old ferro alloy plant there as a uh, as China went about, and Zhu Rongji, the you know the reformist premier, started to reform the state enterprises, and China experienced its first mass layoffs. Maybe 30 million people laid off in the late 90s, early 2000s. So, right. so that was that the Shagang
0: wenti at the time. The, it the was Xiaogang cool, right?
2: phenomena, when you know the end of the iron rice bowl. The right. So that's another place I look at on the land side. You know, I spent some time visiting uh, Xiaogang. In Anhui province, which, right. you know, all old China hands like yourself know is where the household responsibility system was born and where the dissolution of the communes happened, which led to this, you know, great rise in rural incomes. Uh, but then, as I argue in the book, later stalled. And so Shaogang was another is another sort of key location in the book. And, you know, just there we've looked at Dongbei, the northeast, uh, Anhui, not too far from the coast. And then the Dongguan, down not to, you know, in a couple, an hour and a half or so from Hong Kong, and then the, deep in the interior in Guizhou. So, uh, one of the things that really struck me about doing this book, as I decided to write it, was that this is really one aspect of of the story of China writ large: the migrants and the factories, uh, crucial to the to China's economic model up until today, and encompassing people from all over the country.
0: Tiff, let's talk about the Mo family and why you decided to use them as the anchor, really, to the book. Uh, in some ways, they are very typical of what's happened in China during this uh, great migration. But in other ways, they're they're really not very typical in that they're from the mountains of Guizhou, an era of extreme poverty that's very remote, and was accessible only by horse-drawn cart until just a few years ago. And also, they're not Han; they're they're an ethnic minority, right? So, can you tell us about the major characters in the Moore family who feature in the book, and about the place they come from?
2: Yeah. So, uh, when I went when I went down to Dongguan uh, and then later to Guizhou, uh, I I was looking for you know, some migrant workers, and as a journalist, part of the story happens because finding those people that are willing to talk to you and and have interesting life stories, and they certainly uh, fit both of those categories, um, and so. The Mo's are, are very different in, in many ways. As you say, they're this ethnic group, the, the Bui people, which a lot of people outside of China have never heard of. Uh, they, they speak a dialect that's very similar to the Zhuang, which, uh, um, if I'm not mistaken, is maybe the, the largest ethnic minority. Uh, and, and so they're very similar to the Zhuang. Um, they're very similar to the, to the, the Miao or, or Hmong people, actually that you know that we've got a significant uh, population of of people from from the Hmong ethnicity living in the US as a legacy of the Vietnam War, of course.
0: But I gotta say Bui is a pretty cool name for an ethnic group.
2: It is. Bui Tzu. Yes yeah, is, is it
0: cloth clothes, right?
2: Yes, 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 absolutely. So they are they are very different. On the other hand, the challenges that they have confronted in their lives, I quickly discovered Due to the household registration policy, due to the fact that education in the cities is not accessible to most the children of most migrants, the health care issues they felt where even as a migrant goes and spends most of his or her life working in the cities, they often cannot bring their elderly parents there because of problems getting access to urban and health care. All of those things that the Mo's very much experienced and still experience today are emblematic of of the whole migrant population. So those people that I met, my first introduction was to Mo Ruxuan, who was a uh, local, an up-and-coming party official, and uh, basically was introduced to him through a friend of a friend. And it was an interesting story how I ended up in Binghua Tsun. He was actually working in a neighboring township next to Li Boa, Li Boa being the township where Binghua Sun is. And because he was in a neighboring township, he, uh, first of all, very much wanted to focus some attention on his village. This was 2000, it was uh, one year after the US and China had signed the bilateral accession agreement to enter the WTO. It was one year before China was about to enter the WTO. And, and, and keep in mind, everybody knew in 2000 that China would enter because the U.S.-China agreement was the most important bilateral agreement that had to be signed. And as, long, as soon as that was signed, we actually had a good idea when China was going to enter, which was the end of 2001. So right. this village, like many other places across China, was trying to figure out how, they could, um, how their lives would change and how their local economy might change with WTO entry. And this local official, Mo Ruxian, was delighted when I contacted him to have me go visit and do a story about his village. Again, this is back in 2000. And on that first trip, I heard a lot about different ideas about how people hoped that WTO, entry to WTO could transform their place. And they were hoping that that it might bring in Chinese investment from elsewhere in the country. And they were very hopeful that it might bring in foreign investment or American investors that would... uh, One idea that I kept being told that people were hoping for back then was, uh, money to set up a processing factory hmm. so that they could actually process the, the vegetables that they grew there, which, you know, ranged from tomatoes to chili peppers. So anyway, Mo Ruxuan, I introduced, uh, was introduced to him. Um, I went and met him in his, where he worked in his office because he wasn't actually an official, a local official in his, in the township where his village was. He, uh, was willing to talk to me, you know, you, you guys know right, China well, right. if he had been, um, if he had been working, uh, nearby his own village and been in charge of it, we would have had to go through a whole bunch of hoops to make the visit. But instead, uh, he arranged the visit and, uh, talked to me as an official in a neighboring, uh, neighboring township. <laughs> Great. And, uh, and I made that first visit. And, uh, on that same visit, I met, uh, Mo Ru his brother, who, uh, that first visit, I, I barely remember. He was, he was called back by his brother to be basically a host for me. And the reason why he was called back was because uh, Mo Ruchun had been one of the earliest uh, migrants to leave the village. That meant that he'd actually learned to speak semi-standard Mandarin. He'd been, he'd been working all over the country, right. as opposed right. to a lot of the people that stayed in Bui, who, most of which couldn't speak Mandarin. They spoke the uh, the Bui dialect, which is very similar to the Zhuang dialect, and and the Mandarin they spoke, you know, as you would imagine, had a very thick accent. So Ru came back um, and he met me at the horse cart that uh, deposited me in the village, which was necessary because the road was so muddy at that time of year. And so I met him. And, you know, today he's a fairly successful entrepreneur who's tried a, do- a lot of different businesses in his time. And... Uh, many of them haven't been successful, but right now he's doing okay. Um working in the lumber industry in neighboring Guangxi, um, but also has a home back in, in Libo, the local township where binghua is. So so he is another key character. And I can keep going or we can or
1: we can uh, go. no, that's good. I mean it's it's really they're the, the the brothers who are at the center of it and Moru Twin, of course has children. And uh, it's the fate of those children that are left behind by parents who end up migrating to, to work in, in factory towns like Nungguan that is one of, them, I think, a really interesting uh, part of the early chapters of the book. Uh, I think probably most of our, our listeners are familiar with the, the plight of the left-behind children. Uh, but your your book focuses on a lot of detail that I, I at least, wasn't fully aware of. Uh, one thing that struck me was the fact that, for example, uh, you, you had been talking to somebody who was working uh, on this issue in Hong Kong, and she uh, said that children of migrants who are left in the countryside, uh, who get sent off to boarding school after, you know, after age five or whatever, uh, they come back to their villages with real disadvantages when it comes to the standardized tests, you know, the Zhongkao to get into high school and the, the Gaokao to get into college. Uh, can you talk about that in particular and some of the other educational issues that are con- that these uh, left behind children confront?
2: Yeah, yeah, that scholar, by the way, is a, is Anita Ku, and she with some other scholars, focused in on what they call the doubly disadvantaged youth. And those are kids that, as you just described, who actually do try to they do spend several years of their, the first years of their education with their parents. Uh, In the in the cities uh, with their migrant worker parents, that often is complicated by the fact that, as you know, they can't usually get into urban public schools. In most cases, they end up in private schools that cater to migrant children that are often actually relatively expensive and don't provide usually uh, as good education. So what happens is as the Jong cow gets closer, the test to get into high school, into a good high school, they're not eligible to take that test in the cities and they're not eligible to go to high school in the cities. So what they have to do is they, they go back to their villages. And one of the sort of surprise findings that Anita Ku studied was the fact that that's actually uh, and that often puts them in a position where they're actually not very well prepared one of the reasons why is because as China has tried to move away from its emphasis on just rote memorization and make its education system basically better, they've they've experimented in the cities with moving away from that that focus on memorization. Right. And, you know, they've introduced new topics uh, uh, and so on. That hasn't really happened in parallel in the countryside. So these people, these kids could go back. They take the Zhongkau. They... Do, do as well as they might do. And they get into these high schools that are much more traditional and focused on rote memorization. Often that combined with the fact, so that actually puts them at a disadvantage. The first disadvantage is the fact that they're often these not very good private schools in the cities. The second disadvantage is now they're, they're not actually doing very well in the rural high schools. You have to throw in the, or add the fact that these are often quite impersonal boarding schools. They're far away yeah, from their parents. I
1: mean, yeah, at hellish. Yeah,
2: they're far away from their parents. Um, and, you know, they cooped up in these dorms, sometimes 12, 16 high school kids to a room, and uh, uh, it's not very pleasant. And while China has put an enormous amount of money in trying to improve rural education, much of it has gone into, uh, as is the case so often, has gone into physical infrastructure. So you go visit these boarding schools, as I did, and they look pretty good. They're, you know, they're these big concrete hulking buildings. There, uh, they, they often have sports fields. You know, they're not that old because the money, you know, the, the money came in the in the recent years, and they built new schools. Uh, there was a huge rush to build more boarding schools, and a lot of them uh, were built fairly recently. But that sort of emphasis on building up the physical infrastructure, in most cases, this has not been matched with the with the with the soft infrastructure the level of teaching. Yeah, they it's, they, and,
1: they have a lot more in common with like a Dickens orphanage than they do with Exeter prep. Yeah,
2: yeah I'm afraid so. Yeah, I did a story, uh, which was for, for Business Week, which was called China's, the title, which I wasn't responsible for, but were fairly accurate, was China's Dickensian boarding schools. Uh, right, so, right. So these kids come back, and what happens is they very frequently drop out of high school. So you have this... Uh, Tremendous problem with rural dropouts, kids of migrants, who then basically are cycled back into something similar to their parents. They don't get their parents often weren't very well educated. Education's gone up amongst migrants. But now you have these rural kids going back, dropping out, and therefore they can't get a good job in the new economy. And they end up going back and doing the lowest of the low jobs, whether it's back in the factories, construction sites or Some of the service jobs that are out there, the really really tough ones, like the motorcycle delivery jobs.
0: That's right. Tiff, what about migrant schools in cities? This has been a a big issue for a long time, um, closing of schools uh, that were serving the children of migrants, and uh, often very heartbreaking uh, stories over the past few years. Why are municipal governments in first-tier cities so opposed to these schools?
2: Well, if you look at, again, the first tier cities, cities like Beijing, uh, there's been a real effort to actually reduce the migrant populations. And, of course, we saw uh, several years ago with the big fire, the Daxing fire, there were outright, you know, there were mass evictions of migrants from Beijing and then later Shenzhen and other cities around China. and. These cities, again, Beijing and Shanghai in particular, have actually set, you know, they like to set targets on population growth. They've actually set targets that reduce the population. And so there's pressure to move out the migrant workers. Um, at the same time, you know, they the, the you know, we have the, they're the migrant children. And so what's happened in many cases is when municipal officials decide that there are too many migrants. They, you know, the one thing they can do, which is very heavy handed and they've done before, is, is order uh, apartment buildings to stop, stop renting to people that don't have local hukou. But another very effective thing to do is to shut down the private schools that cater to the migrant workers' children. Because if your children can't go to school, uh, the migrant workers, the whole families need to move on to find some place where they can put their kids in school. And uh, that's been quite brutal. I mean, we've seen whenever there is this mandate to reduce the migrant population, typically they go after the schools. They always have an excuse. It doesn't have the proper licenses. It's a fire trap. You know, the building's not up to code. These things may be true, but usually the the actual motivation is more about pushing migrants out of the city rather than trying to, you know, have safe schools for migrant children.
1: So we've talked about the kids. So in in these empty nest villages all over China, these Kung, what are they called, Kung uh, Chao you rarely see working age people, of, of course, just just these children, Um, uh, but also the elderly. We've uh, talked about the kids. What about the aged in China, especially in, in, in rural society where, you know, there's always been this expectation that, that people of working age are supposed to take care of their parents. Obviously, that's not going to happen when they're often in, in Dongguan or in Shenzhen. So what kinds of pressures do the elderly face?
2: So, uh, you know, obviously the elderly in China everywhere face, you know, face some of the same challenges, same pressures, but it's, but it's, there's, there's uh, different pressures and, and sort of a height, heightened challenges for the rural elderly. Uh, there, uh, first of all, it's happening faster in the countryside and that's, you know, that's sort of simple arithmetic. If the young people are leaving the countryside, then obviously you're going to have an average uh, older population in the countryside. So it's happening much faster there. Um, the problems that they face are uh, are be- become more severe when you look at their lifestyles. Many elderly in the in the villages, uh, along with taking care sometimes of young children um, who are uh, who in many cases get parked when they're very young with the with the grandparents in the countryside, they also typically will work in the fields sometimes into their eighties. Uh, the World Bank has actually done research on this, and so they don't retire like people do in, in China's cities. So this can be often backbreaking work. You know, typically they have a very small plot of land. That's that's typical for all of China for most agriculture, and you've got uh, and it's not very mechanized. So you have literally these, you know, you have very elderly p- people sometimes into their 80s bent over trying to tend little fields. So you, you can imagine the sorts of uh, physical problems that come with that. Uh, they have higher rates of untreated hypertension. They have higher rates of respiratory diseases. Right. Another big, big one is depression. Frankly, there's a huge problem with depression in the countryside amongst the elderly. Uh, overall suicide rates sadly, are, you know, they're three times higher in the countryside than they are in the cities. Uh, Many cases, they're reliant on checks, you know, remittances being sent back from their children who are working in the factories. Uh, But that isn't, you know, that that's that only helps as much as it can. That doesn't doesn't mean they can't keep working the fields. So I guess just one other thing, uh, you know, in China's efforts to eradicate poverty, which they've made, you know, very substantial and, and impressive progress in, they've had to actually focus on rural elderly poverty as well, because it's a, right, still a serious right. problem. You know, the empty nest phenomenon, which they, the Kong Chao Chun, I'm, I'm messing up the tones, I'm sure, but, um, <laughs> uh, the, that's because, uh, you, the, it's an empty nest. You end up, you, these villages end up being very elderly. Often with infants, the very elderly typically have very low levels of education. Uh, they're not reading bedtime stories to those migrant little toddlers. I'll tell you that. Um, they don't necessarily have training in taking care when they raised kids many many years ago. Uh, it was a it, you know, it was a different era in China, and so they don't have the skills to raise young children as well. So this is it's a real it's a very real problem for not just the villages themselves, but uh, for the migrant worker population as a whole.
0: Tiff, the conditions you describe in the early chapters of your book from your earlier visits to factory cities like Dongguan are pretty appalling. Uh, There are workers sharing narrow beds, working extremely long hours at dirty, dull and or dangerous tasks. but over the last 20 years, how would you describe the improvements, in, if any, in, in conditions uh, at such factories? And what has driven those improvements?
2: Well, there's been tremendous improvements. So those uh, factory conditions that I describe early on in the book, uh, many of those have gone away. Uh, so the, uh, it, was, you know, it, was, it was really the definition of sweatshop labor back then. Back in the, you know, the bad old days in the late 90s and early 2000s, typically these workers would show up at the factories. Uh, they felt very blessed to just have that job. They would have to hand over their household registration booklet or their hukou their bar in order. And they'd hand it over to the factory manager. Uh, that would, in effect, kept them prisoners in the factory. The factory manager was like, what else do they want to do? You know, they're not... They're, they're migrants. Their job is to work in my factory. They don't need to go wander around the town. They'll probably get into trouble. And so, of course, I should take their household registration booklet. But what would happen is they'd get picked up by police if they did venture out of the factory. And, you know, there's this terrible phenomena with the the black the black jails that, uh, that migrants were mistreated in. They would be picked up by the police. They wouldn't have their household registration booklet, which they were supposed to have on them at all times. And uh, they would be thrown into these... "Quote unquote black jails" and often have to pay large fines. Sometimes their relatives would have to gather money and bring it together to get them out of these black jails. Uh, The conditions, as you say, in the dormitories were pretty bad. Uh, The food was pretty bad in the in the cafeterias. A lot of that began to change as really sort of with the demographic shift in China and the fact that this, uh, and also the the fact that. There were fewer. And the the numbers of migrants coming from the countryside every year into the cities started to slow down. Now it's you know, now it's basically stalled. Um, So that growth that basically provided very, very cheap labor to the factories of of new workers started to slow down. Uh, You know what happens then? Wages start to go up. Workers actually started to have a bit of, you know, sort of the, the labor management balance of power started to shift a little bit. So these workers would be like, yeah, the, the, the practice of handing over your household registration to a factory manager quickly vanished. You know, no, no factory manager that asked a worker to do that could get the worker to stay there. They, they could walk down the street to a new factory. And so, um, so there was a real shift. And, you know, at the same time, we saw back here in the U.S. Uh, the rise of a whole movement against sweatshop labor initially targeted at Nike. You know, all the students organizing on university campuses and suddenly the big labels like Nike and others were very conscious of the, you know, the, their reputation and the fact that 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 they could be hurt if uh, if these scandals emerged about mistreatment in their supplier factories. So they started to police it as well.
1: It's great that the demand side consumer activism really helped. That's 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 marvelous to hear.
2: Yeah, no, I think it I think it really did. Um, and I spent a lot of time with Nike. Uh, Going through factories and they're showing me how they were trying to root out, uh, you know, illegal or bad practices in terms of management of workers. And they were sincere. They didn't you know, they didn't want to see their stock get hit by a boycott or something because because of uh, uh, stories of of uh, of a sweatshop emerging there.
1: I just want to ask you something about the, the labor conditions there. You know, one of the things I used to hear when I was a reporter, you know, on trips down there, you were talking about how they could just get up and walk down the street to the next factory and get another job. Well, I mean, this was something that Nike and all these other companies were actually encountering all the time, um, that they they wanted to comply. They wanted their their factory managers to comply with these you know, overtime laws. But it was actually pretty difficult because the, the bosses couldn't really pay time and a half on weekdays for overtime and double wages on weekends because the margins were so slim. So they tried to keep the workers to just their 40 hours. And then the workers would just, you know, as you say, get up and leave, right? I mean, their thinking was, hey, hey, I didn't come all the way here from rural Guizhou, so I could just work eight hours a day and, uh, you know, watch TV or play cards in the evening. They they wanted as many hours as they could overtime or not, right? Uh, Did you did you encounter this?
2: Yeah, I did. And another thing I should give credit to the Chinese government here as well. They passed a a very important labor law, which put into place those requirements on paying for weekends and holidays, double and triple pay. Uh, They that they put into place a labor contract law, which dealt with the actual contractual stuff between workers and management. And they were, by the way, looking to they, they were actually talking to German scholars of labor and they put into place a huh. labor law that was actually quite strict and quite quite work, pro-worker. And so that was the other part of it. Uh, the big brands uh, and retailers started to discover that their suppliers were not meeting the new law. And this could be a, a real serious problem for them. So they started to try to ensure as well that uh, these new laws that the Chinese government had put into place were being enforced. The phenomena you mentioned, uh, I absolutely encountered that. I talked to many a factory manager that said, you know what, uh, when I tell workers, you know, first of all, they would say I can afford to pay them their regular payment. I used to give them overtime, but now I'm required by law to pay them double for overtime. I simply can't do that. My margins are too tight. So what I do is I limit my worker to you know whatever's the maximum hours that they can work a week, and then I try to find other workers for production. And workers literally were walking away because they were saying, in some cases, they were saying, you know what, I don't need double time. I just want I just want the 50, 60 hours. And uh, uh, I have got my relatives and my family back in the village. I'm sending money back there. I'm ready to work really, really hard. And uh, the factory managers were saying, I can't do that anymore. I'm going to get caught right. all these inspectors There are a whole new pho- phenomena of uh inspectors going through the factories that the labels and the retailers were hiring to try to find any infractions
1: you, you did that you actually went along on a, a, a ride-along right i
2: did i did yeah yeah and it was quite an eye-opener this was early enough that there were some real sweatshops uh out there not that they have completely disappeared by any means but um but there were more of them back then and and uh yeah. I remember one really memorable one where I was going into a toy factory, uh, with one of the inspectors from a, a, a big, a big retailer. And, and, uh, so he was an in-house, he was an in-house inspector. So they would, they would hire third-party firms to do it. And some of them would do it in-house. And so he, he basically said, well, I, I will be, you know, we're going to show up my, uh, around this hour. And we showed up instead 30 minutes early. And, uh, um, the manager, you know, was red in the face and nervous. And you know, why did you get here early? He tried to lead us into a little meeting room, which is the first thing they always do, to distract us. And you know, pulling out pulling out the books to show to show us that the that everyone was uh, being paid the right amount, to show us their ages to make sure there was no underage labor. And uh, the guy I was with, who was an old pro, was like, "Okay, we'll do this at the end. We want to go into the onto the factory floor right now." And we went in there and it was was a they were making Disney figurines, so it was not very nice. There was an overpowering smell of paint and rubber and mainly young women, uh, but, you know, probably old enough of age, not underage, uh, sitting on these lines. And the guy I was with uh, said, wait a minute, what's that door back there? And he'd been doing this long (laughs) enough that he knew there's always that door (laughs) they would have. You know, you'd have to go through the back, the, the secret door in the back to see what was really happening. And the guy became extremely nervous, the factory manager. Ultimately, he had no choice but let us open the door and let us through. And suddenly, uh, it was a much, it was a much, much, uh, the much poorer conditions. There wasn't proper ventilation. It was hotter. The air conditioning wasn't on in there. And the, the people, the young women, again, looked very young, like, like there were girls there. And some of them, God. some of them leapt up and, and tried to hide behind their, behind their, their line mates. And uh, you know, we quickly figured out that they were 15 years old in some cases, which is again, which is against the law. So that was quite a few years ago. It was in the mid 2000s, uh, and I'm happy to say, you know, a, a good portion of that has been reined in in uh, in the following intervening years.
0: Wow. So in the face of uh, these sometimes terrible conditions. Um, In many other countries, you might see an organized labor movement. But of course, in China, organized labor outside of uh, party control is taboo. Um, You detail some cases of labor unrest, though, including the Yang Yuan strikes of 2014 and the Jassa case of 2018, uh, which has also been in the news last year. Uh, Can you talk about the Communist Party's fraught history with labor and wildcat strikes and about the efforts supposedly underway to overhaul the All China Federation of Trade Unions.
2: Yeah, well, so the 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 union system in China uh, goes way back. It was actually created in 1925, and it, at the time it was actually modeled on the Soviet Union's worker system. So we have the All China Federation of Trade Unions. The first thing you have to know is that uh, it is firmly under the under the control of the Communist Party. And uh, and it's you know, it's nothing remotely like an independent labor union like we might experience in other countries in the world. And it's often it so Vladimir Lenin had this line about how the union should be a transmission belt, which basically would work both ways. The concerns of the workers would uh, rise through the union on the transmission belt to the party cotter's and they would then be able to take action to answer and be responsive to the workers' concerns. On the other hand, uh, the transmission was supposed to belt was supposed to go the other way, which is the party's uh, ideology, the uh, proper you know the proper consciousness, uh, all of that should be conveyed through the union back to the workers. And uh, so the union has always been uh, very much not independent. And you know we this goes way back. So in the I think in the late 50s, there were huge labor strikes in Shanghai. And at the time, the head of the ACFTU, the union, then a gentleman named Lai Roy Yu actually spoke out and said the workers are protesting because the union is not doing its job and it's not uh, it's not answerable to the to the workers. And it's not it's not it's not trying to improve their lot. And, you know, he was promptly purged for saying that it was considered uh, (laughs) that wasn't supposed that was not his role to to, uh, to criticize this organization. So, you know, uh, you know, fast forward up until the last few years, I think in 2015, uh, the ACFTU, it's the only union in China, um, it's become a bit bloated. It has an enormous bureaucracy. Uh, at the same time, there's major labor protests happening. The one you just referred to at the Adidas suppliers, which brought in tens of thousands of workers, deeply alarmed uh not only Adidas, but the Chinese government and uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the leader, uh, just you know, launches this whole-scale effort to try to reform the ACFTU. Uh, much of it good. He tries to cut the bureaucracy, uh, so it's fewer full-time staff actually running the union. He does try to like bring in more migrant workers who have typically been underrepresented in the union because they're migrants. They don't. They, they often they move on and they don't join the local union uh, because they're not long enough in one factory. Um, and and he and he set up these sort of ACFTU, these union, um, uh, all China Federation of Trade Union service centers around the country. The backdrop to what he's while he's doing that, there's a massive crackdown on the independent labor movement, which has uh, been growing in strength. And we have these we have these different sometimes sort of Almost barefoot lawyers, self-trained lawyers. Say a worker who decides that it, you know that this is very important, and trains himself in labor law and starts to represent workers. And uh, these NGOs uh, representing workers start popping up, particularly in Guangdong. So there's a massive crackdown on them, um, and there's. You know, a right. number of people that uh, were most of the people that were running these various most the most effective independent labor organizations are now in jail. Very sad. I and mean, these are people I knew quite well, who I spent a lot of time with over the years talking to. Um, and uh, they were very high profile and those many of them are in jail now. So on the one hand, he's he's trying to reform the ACFTU and somehow make it more uh, answerable to the worker. And on the other hand, he's he's doing this very vicious crackdown. On this independent labor movement, which had become quite effective in trying to help workers, including in that Adidas strike, um, and and I just one last thing he there's a there's a, a clear emphasis on trying to uh, uh, sort of re- rebuild the transmission element of the union. So on the one hand, um, the the union is supposed to do a better job of representing the concerns of the workers, and uh, their concerns are supposed to rise up to the administrators and the party. On the other hand. There's a very, very marked effort to try to start teaching party principles and the correct, whatever that might be, the correct attitude you need as a worker and as a member of a a workers union to the workers. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of study sessions and learning party doctrine that actually comes through the union now, which did not in the past.
1: Hey, Tiff, just a real quick question for you. Uh, you talk in your book about China's e-commerce boom and, and its transformation of the Chinese countryside, this whole phenomenon of, of Taobao villages and so forth. Uh, you even have the head of the World Bank gushing about how this is a, a huge game changer for people in rural China. But how impactful, in your assessment, has this really been, and how much of this is just spin from Alibaba and J.D.? <laughs>
2: Well you know it's it's a really it's a real mixed bag. It's clearly a real thing in terms of 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 it happening these Taobao villages. Uh-huh. And by the way in some cases empty nest villages that we were talking about earlier uh because of Taobao industry they've actually been able to draw back some of the younger the younger people or the middle-aged people who can actually work in this cluster of of factories that that now do their you know business through Taobao. So it so so it is it is actually happening. But uh, one of the interesting and somewhat alarming things that I did see is, you know, these are the nature of a Taobao, uh, a Taobao village, and a Taobao factory is small. Um, often started by former migrant workers themselves, and they're not. Uh, I guess I would say they're they're the last. This this type of factory is small. Sometimes it only lasts for a short period of time. The last thing they're concerned about is labor law. The last thing yeah, they're exactly. concerned about is factory conditions. The last thing they're worried about is underage workers. So, in some of these Taobao villages, and probably probably pretty probably more widespread than we realize, a lot of these old sort of sweatshop conditions are being resurrected. They basically fly under the radar. They're not, you know, if a if a if a city wants to or a or a township wants to clean up its labor sector, they go to the bigger factories, the ones that actually might pay the fines and help the local coffers. And these Taobao factories usually are untouched. So there are signs huh. that that they uh, that sort of some of the worst practices of the sweatshop era are being resurrected in the Taobao villages.
0: Uh, very mixed bag. Absolutely. Tiff, in some ways, I think you could say this book is about two major injustices. Uh, the dual land system with the addiction that local governments have to land sales as their only means of raising revenues, and then also the hukou system. But let's talk first about land. What's at the heart of this problem?
2: Yeah, so those are really the two legacy policies that I argue uh, are the biggest obstacles to China continuing uh, on the, on its economic, basically carrying out this economic transition from factory of the world to this new uh, much, they, they're very clear what they want. They want a much more consumer-driven economy. They want a much bigger service industry. They still do want manufacturing, but they want to be making higher value added goods. And they want the factories to be far more automated, uh, which is in tandem with the rising wages. So, uh, so, so the, land sy- the, the land system that China has today, uh, again, a legacy of the Mao era, uh, d- makes a distinction between rural and urban land. So it's often called shorthand the dual land system. And there's some great scholars looking at this. One example, Susan Whiting at the University of Washington. And uh, so basically what happens is, in according to the official doctrine, uh, the land in the countryside is is still collectively owned. So what does that mean? That basically means that uh, the people that till the land or hold the land, and migrant workers typically will have a small plot of land back in the countryside as well, uh, are not able to really monetize it. So uh, if they do rent it or if they do sell it, and there are experimental programs to try to encourage renting and selling of rural land, typically the the value they get is very, very low. And one of the biggest reasons is they are unable to take, say it's an agricultural agricultural plot of land, which it always is, they are not able to rent it or sell it for industrial or commercial use. So it's it's gotta be rented as for agriculture. The Now the catch is, it is possible for that land to be converted. It's just that the farmers and the migrants can't do it. Local officials have the right to reclassify agricultural land as commercial or industrial. And in fact, they do it all the time. Um, and this has given risen, you know, so they, they reclassify it. They 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 buy it or they buy a purchase agreement from the farmers um, and they reclassify it as urban or industrial. And they I mean, sorry, commercial or industrial. And uh, then they can they can sell it on or rent it on to, you know, a factory or uh, a housing Mm -hmm. development. And typically the value that they get when they do that could be 10 times as much as as what the farmers actually got or the migrants got. And so that's the situation in the countryside Uh, There's been talk about reforming it. One of the very biggest obstacles is the fact that local governments are heavily reliant on these uh, revenues from converting land and selling it. And so in order to solve that problem, we need to figure out the Chinese government needs to figure out um, how they're going to support, you know, where local governments are going to get their revenues from. If if, you know, a third to a half of it was coming before from land related proceeds and, and that goes away if instead the farmers and the migrants are benefiting from it. Now that, that this the system in the countryside stands in you know marked contrast to the cities, where, as we all know, there's been an explosion of wealth built on the ability to to rent, to buy and sell apartments, even if it's just a 70 year lease, uh, which it is. Uh, the assumption being that the the government will give them another 70 year lease after after the the first one expires, and I think they're they're starting to do that. Um, So the so in the cities, people are able to actually make large, huge amounts of money from selling their apartments, and uh, this is, by the way, probably more than anything else explains the the very large and fast-growing income and wealth gap or wealth gap in China today. This this distinction between rural and urban land.
1: That's absolutely right. Um, As we said, the other fundamental problem is, of course, the hukou system, this internal passport system. I think it's fair to say that most people recognize at some level that it's a deeply unfair system, and yet it's been incredibly difficult to try to reform. Can you explain why that is? I mean, is there any realistic way that you're aware of that you can reform or abolish the hukou system without creating these, like, suppurating altruous slums of the sort you see, you know, in in Bangalore or in a lot of large cities of the global south, and and without overwhelming the the social services of the, the big Chinese cities?
2: Well, I mean that that's the real concern, and that's one of the main reasons why they have moved as slowly as they have, and they really have moved slowly. I just remind you that they announced with much fanfare in two thousand and thirteen at a third plenum that year that they were going to move quickly to reform household registration and the and the land system, and there have been there's been very very limited progress, small pilot programs and so on, but they're still so far away from that. So one of the major concerns indeed is that the cost will be too high, that the you know, integrating migrants, their children, their families into urban health care and urban education is just simply going to be you know, exorbitant. So that's one big, uh, that's one very big issue. Um, and I should add, there is a bit of debate on this. There are Chinese scholars and some officials that think that that simply won't be the case. You know, the migrant's Have proven proven themselves to be very hardworking people. Uh, They come to the cities to work. They don't come to just hang out. And uh, and so another argument says, actually, no. They will become, uh, you know, uh, they're uh, uh, taxpaying new citizens. And actually, it's not going to be as expensive expensive as everyone thinks. Um, And a similar argument with the slums. It's like, uh, you know, the people that are supporting the reforms will say you know, look at the migrants today. They're, you know, they're they're not really living in squalor. Even when, you know, the system is built to make life difficult for them in the cities, they've done as good a job as possible in difficult circumstances to make, you know, decent lives in the city for them and their families. The private schools for migrant kids is one example. So, so there is an argument that can be made that says, you know, actually, it's not going to be nearly as expensive or socially destabilizing to bring these people into the cities. Uh, a huge obstacle, which is not always remarked upon, is the urban people themselves. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it won't be any, it, won't, how do you it mean? probably won't be a surprise to either of you with, you know, with, <laughs> with Chinese relatives, as I have as well, that many, with urban Chinese relatives, many people in the cities, you know, first of all, they, are under enormous pressure. You know, it's extremely difficult for them to go to a hospital already in the city. You know, the, the lines that people have to wait in uh, perhaps it's gotten maybe a bit better, but it can be brutal to actually get a doctor's appointment. You know, bribery was very common in the past as well to, to see a doctor in the cities, uh, getting your kid into a good urban, a good school in the city is extremely competitive. So we have the whole phenomena of the, uh, what do they call the fang Chu, the, the, Basically, people buying Mm -hmm. these insanely expensive rundown hovel apartments in a particular part of a city like Beijing simply because (laughs) that allows them to put their kid in the in the neighboring school, the school that's nearby. So so there's huge competition already. Some of the some of the most notable protests by urbanites in recent years have actually been related to to uh, efforts by the government to do the right thing in, in my perspective and bring more migrant children into urban schools. And what we've seen is urban parents literally going down to the Ministry of Education With this happened in Nanjing a few years ago and it's happened in a bunch of other cities and protesting and saying, you know, do not let those migrant kids into our schools. It, you know, I, I, they, you know it's, it's hard enough already for my kid to get into a good school. So there's huge resistance and this is something that, uh, to a degree, you know, w- it makes things more difficult for policymakers as well, this sort of...
1: These are the same people who who emigrate to the U.S. and uh, end up voting for Trump because of affirmative action, uh, God. <laughs> I'm afraid so, Assholes. I'm afraid so. And I mean, the yeah. hukou
2: system, keep in mind, you know, despite, there's a great irony in the fact that it was put in place by Mao, at that time, mainly uh, aimed at... Uh, Having a sort of a uh, a docile population in the countryside to to grow the crops to to feed the industrial workers who whose kids who who you know the technocrats who would uh you know man the steel factories uh and and try That's to right. make you know the make China leapfrog and catch up with the world in steel production it was a very Stalinistic idea and. Uh, and so this idea was, you know, we'll keep people locked on the farm and in the communes later, in order to to make this whole thing to, to power industrialization. So, uh, urbanites in China are have, for decades have been used to this system, and it'll be no, you know, you won't be surprised to hear this. Uh, you know, it's very common to hear. I don't know what the right expression is. Classist. Uh, yeah, uh, no, expressions classist. That's By what it urbanites is. about the, you know, the no, no mean. You know, farmer is an insult.
0: I was going to say in my first year in Beijing, I worked at a factory, uh, a joint venture factory, and I was shocked within the first week to learn that my colleagues, well, I was supposed to be teaching them English, used that regularly as a term of insult because I thought I was coming to a a communist country. And that was way back in 1995.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's really ingrained. And, you know, and why, you know, why do and uh,
0: yeah, why do is an insult in most big cities?
2: You know, the idea that crime is brought in by the by the migrants, you know, when in reality, as we all know, cities like Beijing, you know, would basically grind to a halt without the migrant community, the del- food delivery, the eyes, everything, you know, the restaurant staff, all of that is migrant workers. So I think there is a real problem in these uh, sort of the resistance from, I, you know, I call them the elites, although many of them are not elite. They're elite in the sense that they have a household, an urban household registration or a Beijing household registration, um, and they have no desire to see the integration of migrants and their families into the cities.
0: Yeah, let's ask a final question and uh, bring it right up to date with uh, the pandemic. How, Tiff, how do you think the COVID-19 epidemic epidemic in China, which Beijing is now claiming it has gotten under control, Uh, claiming, I would stress. Uh, How do you think it's going to impact migrant workers in China?
2: So, so far, the, you know, we've already got signs of of how it might and it's it's not a, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, So, you know, if you look at the cities now, uh, there's things seem to be uh, sort of returning somewhere close to normalcy for the urban residents, Uh, white collar workers, you know, they can work from home or they're going into the office once a week. Uh, For the migrants, obviously, you know, they can't work from home, whether they're working in a restaurant, a delivery person or in a factory. And so uh, in the first month or so, we saw many of them completely unable to actually even return to the cities where they had worked. And we also, by the way, uh, you know, as you know now, probably every urban Housing development now has extra strict policies for entry and exit, and uh, everyone's afraid of the virus coming back, which is fair enough. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, there's been many reports about migrants who had rented places in the cities or on the outskirts of the cities who are now being banned from returning. And in some cases, you know, very dramatic back to sort of like the Dashing expulsion tactics like shutting down the electricity in apartments that migrants have been living in or shutting off the water to drive them out so that's actually been happening as well um, I do think s- sort of the larger picture I think some of these ingrained biases that urban people have against migrants sadly are only going to be reinforced with covid 19 I think there is a you know again there's a legitimate fear of the virus returning but this sort of us versus them urbanites versus these outsiders who come from far away don't have good access to healthcare uh those 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 attitudes i think are and sort of the, the bias against being being with them i think are only or are, are only going to to grow and i should say that this is happening against a backdrop of as i mentioned earlier uh a national policy of trying to drive automation in the factories and so I mean, migrants before COVID-19 were already not feeling welcome in the cities. The trend is to try to encourage them to leave, sometimes forcibly make them leave. Certainly that's happened in Shenzhen over the last few years. Some of the big migrant neighborhoods, uh, they've just shut them down. They've, they've stopped. They order the buildings to stop renting to migrants. And, the, you know, the no uncertain message is go back to where you came from and try to reinvent yourself there as an entrepreneur in hmm. the service industry. And uh, so it was already not particularly uh, welcoming to the migrants, becoming less mi- less welcoming. And I'm just afraid that uh, with COVID-19, uh, the, the, that tendency is only going to be be strengthened.
1: <sighs> well, that's that's a depressing note to end on. But Tiff, I I, I, I can't let you go before I I, I tell one little story um, that you are basically the first and thus far only person to have actually said to me and for very good reason dude your hair is on fire oh. we were at at bai Fung's bar the the nameless bar on on hohai like 20 years it must have been 20 years ago Kaiser, and i had leaned over a, a lit candle
2: yeah i remember this <laughs> i remember this very well i'm glad you brought it up and and you i, sh- I should note that uh, my response although you know sounds sounds funny now was was the proper one because you know, it, it, it was, your absolutely. hair was on fire my hair, your hair it was, was on in fire fact and on I fire. didn't want to, you know, first of all, I actually, I think I might've even smelled it first, because <laughs> you all know how burned, burned hair does not smell good at all. And no, I, it does and, not. Uh, back in even my, mine. back in my dark past, I had rather long hair myself. And, uh, I think I, you know, I think I might've actually been in a similar situation and sadly I didn't have a friend <laughs> uh, call out as I did that day with you fast enough to, uh,
1: I to am glad I hair. had you as a friend that. God, yeah, that was terrible. Uh, Tiff, man, thanks so much for taking the time. And remember, uh, the book is called The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and the Future of the World. Highly recommended. It. It's really an excellent, excellent book. Uh, Tiff, before we do recommendations, I want to remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like this podcast and the other fine shows in our network, the way to keep us going is to subscribe to SubChina's Access newsletter for just 88 bucks a year. You get this, excellent newsletter delivered right to your inbox you get early ad free access to this podcast and you get discounted admission to our major conferences and free admission to our live podcast recordings a lot more to you so sign up and show your support Okay, on to recommendations. Jeremy, start us off, man. What do you got?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, just before that, I'd like to just, uh, the stories about your hair being on fire. I'm very glad that the surveillance state as it is now in China did not exist back in the early 2000s um, for a number of reasons. Uh, But my recommendation (laughs) is uh, a lot of people like me are stuck at home with their kids, uh, no school. Uh, Mine are five and seven. And my wife, uh, Wu Fei, who is a musician and composer, has been recording videos of her reading children's books and poems, both Chinese and English, and setting it to improvised music and sharing them on Facebook and other social media for other parents who are looking for stuff to uh, entertain their children and hopefully not do it in a too mind-destroying way so um, oh that's fantastic uh, if you've got small kids you know I guess anywhere under the age of about 10 it might work um, uh, I, we, I'll we i post the links to the various social media pages or you can just google her Wufei. okay Tiff
2: so this is a this is an old classic but uh, and a book that I was sort of reintroduced to in, in the writing of my book. But uh highly recommend uh, From the Soil, The Foundations of Chinese Society. This was published in 1948 by uh, a gentleman named Fei Xiaotong, who is oh, yeah. Yeah, one of the premier scholars of, of the Chinese countryside. And, uh, you know, he was also one of the probably one of the founders of modern sociology in China. He, he studied, actually, his PhD in sociology at the London School of Economics. Uh, but anyway, he, he has this book, which is a, a wonderful classic, which is, interestingly, uh, still timely today. And so, basically, back then, in the 40s, um, he laid out this, you know, radical, then-radical belief that any viable future for the Chinese countryside, and particularly for the farmers involved in giving agency to to them uh, and and he he didn't have a clear path forward but he said we need to find a way to uh, make help them take take uh, control over their futures he had ideas about you know rural industry that could be developed he had ideas about trying to push democracy at the local level in the countryside uh, for his efforts he, Uh, later got in trouble as you will not be surprised to hear by the communist party um, and uh, was banished for many years, uh, emerged late in his life and uh, uh, sort of a chastened individual, very sad, uh, never talked about some of his radical early beliefs again. But this book by him, again uh, From the Soil, the Foundations of Chinese Society, is a uh, a remarkably sort of prescient look at at China, uh, its relationship to the countryside, and worth still reading today.
1: Wow, it, you know, I remember him when he died. In I guess it was like in the mid 2000s. Um, I was just sort of shocked to realize that he had still been alive. Yes, as I mean, I, I, yeah, it was, he must have been, well, gosh, well into his 90s by then.
2: Yeah, he spent um, uh, he spent about 20 years in exile after uh, uh, being, being outspoken during the Hundred Flowers Movement. You know, at one point clean right. toilets for years apparently, uh, and oh then in 1976, with the death of Mao, was finally rehabilitated and was sort of able to reestablish uh, a, a sort of tightly controlled form of sociology in China.
1: That's great, Fei um, Xiaotong. I am going to re-recommend the first two novels in Hilary Mantel's fantastic trilogy about Thomas Cromwell, uh, set in you know the the Tudor court uh, in the court of King Henry the Eighth. I just re-listened to the second book, uh, Bring Up the Bodies, to just kind of refresh me because I'm about to plunge into the final volume, which just came out, The Mirror and the Light, it's called. Uh, The audiobook versions of these books, at least the first two, are just wonderful. I cannot say enough good things about the narration especially. I mean, it just, well, obviously her writing is phenomenal, but... The, the, the narration really captures all the subtlety and the wit and the, the nuance of, of Mantel's writing. Uh, since we're all basically sheltering in place, I don't think there's a better time to take up the habit of, of listening to audiobooks, so check it out. Uh, that's that's my, my uh, recommendation for the week. Dexter Roberts, TIFF, man. Uh so great that we could finally make this happen and hope you're enjoying uh life back in, in, in big sky country, back in the States. Uh sorry, you know, you had to come back in in such dark times, but <laughs> welcome back.
2: Well yeah, well thank you. Uh I'm making we're making a, the best of it here and uh, uh delighted to finally get on your guys' show.
1: Yeah, well we're gonna have you back again soon.
2: Great.
0: Yeah, thanks, Tiff. That was that was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> okay.
1: The Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Gula and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at subchina news. And make sure to check out all our other podcasts in the Seneca network the China and Africa podcast, Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz, our two shows focused on women, New Voices in Tafata, the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. The China Marketing Podcast, and Strangers in China. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care, wash your hands, and don't touch your face.